Alright, take your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. I told you last week my intention was to get through the rest of the Beatitudes last week, and it just turned out that God kind of said, there's too much here for that I want to communicate to your church, to the people that God, God has called me to minister to. And so, um, last week we, we did some of the last parts of the Beatitudes, but then today we're gonna finish them up. Verses, um, really verses 9 through 12. I want to show you a picture of another guy, and this is a guy that I don't know personally, but this is a guy named Alfred. And Alfred, during the mid to late 1800s, was a guy that was one of the most prominent scientists and entrepreneurs of his day. Now, Albert here was especially known for inventions. He made a fortune inventing and refining specifically explosives. His most famous invention was dynamite. And his intention was to use it for construction, to build highways, to, you know, blast out the paths for highways, or to clear land in order to lay the foundation for a building. But as you can imagine, soon militaries discovered, hey, we could use that too. And so they began to talk to him, buy equipment from him, buy explosives from him, and it ended up that he made the vast majority of his money selling to military. Toward the end of his life, Alfred began to ponder his legacy to humanity. He really had invented dynamite for good, and instead he had equipped armies and helped them to improve their ability to cause death and destruction on the battlefield. And so he started to ask, how do I want to be remembered? What do I want to be remembered as? And so he rewrote his will. And he decided that he would give the substantial portion of his will, his money, his estate, to a group of awards that would be given each year to scientists and thinkers and leaders who make remarkable contributions to the betterment of humankind. Anybody know Alfred's last name? Nobel. And the most famous of the Nobel Prizes goes to a person who shall have done the most or best work between nations for the abolition or destruction of armies and for the promotion of peace. There have been some remarkable people that have won the Nobel Prize. The first winner was Jean-Henri Dumont, who was the one that started the International Red Cross and the Geneva Convention. Mother Teresa won the Peace Prize. Elie Wiesel won the Peace Prize, a former Holocaust survivor who fought for human rights. Martin Luther King Jr., Nelson Mandela. When you look down through the history of those that have won it, it is a remarkable list of people who have remarkable accomplishments about their attempts to bring peace on earth. And yet... After all of their accomplishments, after all of the progress, after all of the things have been done, our world seems no closer to this elusive world peace than we did at the time of Alfred Nobel. Amen? I don't know if you know this or not, there was actually a very popular theological position towards the end of the 1800s called postmillennialism. Anybody read anything about postmillennialism lately? No. Postmillennialism, this is what they said. They said that Jesus would come back after 
we got our act together and a thousand years of peace reigned on the earth. And they said that the millennium was going to start in the 1900s because peace was coming then. I don't know if you remember the 1900s. Some of you weren't born in the 1900s. I was at the end of it, right? It wasn't exactly a peaceful century, right? World War I, World War II, Vietnam, Korea, Desert Storm. That's just the ones that we were really involved in. Postmillennialism has gone away because people realize the world is not getting more peaceful. It's getting less. And even when you look at our society, it's not hard to see the animosity that exists in our country between Republicans and Democrats, between ethnic groups, between racial minorities and authority. It's not hard to see animosity in families, churches, school systems, business places. And Jesus lived in a world that was no stranger to conflict and animosity. He speaks, in fact, in the Sermon on the Mount to a group of people that were being occupied by a foreign invader who did not treat them particularly well. And in the midst of that, where people expect Jesus when he comes as the Messiah, if he is the one, they think Jesus is going to overthrow the government, he's going to take control, and he's going to establish Israel back as a world power. And in the midst of that, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And blessed are those, or blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness for my name's sake. So today we're going to break that down and ask, what did he mean? Now, before we do that, we want to remind ourselves of how we got here. This is Jesus setting up the most famous, the best sermon by the best preacher in the history of the world. It's Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1, and it says that he sat them down. And after he sat them to sit down, the disciples came to him, and he began to teach. And he gives these list of things that, if you remember, we've talked about this over the last couple of weeks, they build upon each other. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those that realize that without God they are utterly destitute. They have no hope. For that is when the kingdom of God can invade because they are willing to accept the help that God provides. Blessed are those who when they see their sin, they mourn over it, they weep over it. We describe that the mourning there is not just a casual mourning. It is a deep resentment of their own sin. It is a crying out. The word literally means to weep because God will comfort them. Blessed are the meek or the humble, the teachable. And so after you realize your destitute nature before God and you come to a place where you mourn over the sin in your life and the distance it has created between you and God, then you become teachable in that moment and you allow God to speak into your life. Now, verse 6, and you hunger and thirst for the righteousness that God provides. You go after him. You seek him. You seek him in the morning. You seek him in the afternoon. You seek him at night. You read his words. You pray for him. You put yourselves in groups of people that allow you to seek him. And so you are someone that realizes how destitute you are before the Lord, you mourn over that. You go after him. You become teachable in that moment. And that turns you into a person in verse 7 that is merciful, that gives mercy, that allows people to understand the mercy of God because you are giving mercy to them. Mercy is when you don't give them what they might deserve. It is it is relenting from punishment and giving people the benefit of the doubt and offering them in an active way help. 
And when you do that, you begin to see God fully and your heart becomes completely possessed with the calling of God on your life. Verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Now, the first thing that we really have to do in this passage is we have to ask ourselves, or in this verse, what does he mean by peacemakers? What is involved in that? What does he mean by that phrase? That is a loaded phrase in the original language. And there are a couple of things that we need to understand. First of all, the peace side of that is not what we normally think of peace. It is not a ceasefire. It is not something where everything just kind of gets along a little bit. It comes from the Hebrew concept of peace, which comes from the Hebrew word shalom, which means wholeness, completeness. It's more than an absence of conflict. It's more than an absence of trouble. It is God's peace is more than that. It is something that gives us comfort and strife. It is the one that gives us the ability to stand wherever we are and realize that we are completely okay. And what is described here is the kind of peace that extends beyond just let's have a truce, let's agree to disagree. This is us wholeheartedly together moving forward towards the things of God as we operate side by side. Blessed are the peacemakers. Peace here, wholeness. A word that I think of when I think of peace in a biblical sense is a word contentment. That because of our relationship with Jesus Christ, no matter what is happening in our lives, we can be upset about it. We can see it. We can say things, man, that's just not right. But at the same time, within us, deep within us, is a contentment over the fact that because we have Jesus, everything's okay. I think about Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13, where Paul is writing to the church that he loves and he says to them that he rejoices greatly because you renewed your care for me. In verse 11, he says, I don't say this because I'm in need. I learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I, I know how to make do with little and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I've learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I've learned the secret, he said, and here's the secret. He says, I'm able to do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, let's just be honest. That verse is misused about as much as any verse in the Bible. Right? We used to, we used to say that verse before we went out on the football field. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We were watching a movie on Netflix this week and one of the, one of the games, it, it actually has a game between Arkansas and Tennessee. It's a story about an Arkansas player. And so the most significant moping happened at a Tennessee game and the guy that he lines up against this, the big bad guy on the Tennessee team is number 27. Some of you remember him, Al Wilson. All right. Al Wilson was a bad man. He was. On the football field, he was a bad man. And when I was in high school, our team played his team. And I was a special teams player only. I know, I know you look at this and you think, like, star linebacker. That's not what I was. It's like, uh, I was a return specialist. Like, blocking returns. I didn't run the ball either. I know I look like a speedy guy, but that's not what I did. And I remember Jason Teeling, okay? Who was my, who back then you could 
you can't do wedges anymore, but we were doing the wedge and he would call out our blocking assignments. And I remember he was up, he was five yards in front of me. We would get together and go block and he turns around and says seven. And I said, who? He said, seven is Al Wilson. I said, all state. He said, seven. I said, you don't have to keep saying the number. That verse wasn't going to help me in that moment. It wasn't going to make me a supernatural football player. I needed some prayers in that moment, right? Here's the thing. Luckily, Al Wilson has unbelievable moves. I never got close to blocking him, all right? Praise be to God. Al Wilson, who this week got nominated for the College Football Hall of Fame. When I say he was good, he was good, all right? People use that verse like that. Like, I can go out here and do anything. That's not what Paul's saying. What Paul is saying is, I have a peace from God. That no matter what situation I find myself in, I'm content. I'm good. I I may not like it. I may not enjoy it. Paul's writing that when he's in jail. I don't think he was. Now, he does talk about all the good things that happened while he was in jail. But it's a different perspective on life. And that's what Jesus is saying. When he says peace there and there, he's not talking about just laying down your guns. He's not talking just about the absence of conflict. He's talking about someone who has encountered God in such a way through Jesus, through him, that his life has been radically transformed. And because of that, he can be content and okay in any circumstance. And then it says he's not just, but it doesn't say he's a peace and himself. It says he's a peacemaker. The idea is that blessed are those who take that feeling, that contentment, that comfort in knowing God, and then do something to try to bring that to the rest of the world. The word maker there is not a passive word. It is a dynamic, active word bursting with energy. It is one who is actively pursuing peace in its fullest. Not partially, not a little bit, not as uh, if it comes, it's fine, it's not impacting me. I mean, it makes this clear that what it's not here is someone that's just going with the flow and letting things just happen. It's not someone that's always tolerant necessarily of everything that comes and says, you do you, I'll do me. They are actively engaged in working. It's not an appeaser. Uh, back in England during the days of World War II, there were lots of people that are like, just, let's just appease Hitler. Just let that happen. There have been lots of European countries that have done that. Appeasement just pushes the conflict down the road when it's harder and worse. It is not appeasement saying we'll just we'll just give them whatever they want that it's an active pursuit of people coming in contact with the peace of god that is provided so what does it look like to be a peacemaker so when it says blessed are the peacemakers i think we need to ask the question what does that look like first of all it means someone has to be honest about the situation in which they find themselves we have to admit that there needs to be peace to be made amen You can't just say, well, everything's fine, everything's good. I think about Nehemiah when he heard about the walls that were down around Jerusalem. Those walls have been down for a long time and nobody had stopped to say, you know what, that's probably not right. Or if they had, they hadn't thought enough to say, I'm going to do something about it. Ezekiel 13 says that when you say that there is peace, when there is no peace, it's like plastering over cracked walls. 
And at the first sign of difficulty, the cracks reveal themselves again. Jeremiah talked about the fact that there are people out there saying everything's fine, everything's good. Now, these are prophets of God saying to the people of God, you think you're okay, but you're not. Get right, understand, realize there's a problem. Peacemaking requires honesty. No ostriching. You know what ostriching is? Sticking your head in the sand and acting like everything will work out if I just stay here. None of that. You got to be honest. With your own life, you ask the Lord to search you. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The first part of that is God search me and let me. You already know me. Show me what you see. Can I tell you, that's one of the most difficult prayers to actually pray in me. God, search me, know me, and show me what you see. Now, here's what we have to understand about our Heavenly Father. It comes from a place of love, always from a place of love. But when you pray that to the Lord, you better be prepared to have your heart and your mind and your will opened up to him. Peacemakers are honest with themselves. Peacemakers are honest about the situation of the world. Peacemakers understand that you can't just say everything's okay. It's not. The second thing that peacemakers do is that they are willing to risk. Last week we talked about this when we talked about mercy. Remember the Good Samaritan who went over. He spent. It took capital. It took actual effort for him to do things. You risk misunderstanding. You risk failure. You risk the pain of admitting that you were wrong. That's a novel concept in our world that it's okay sometimes to admit. In fact, it is if you are a believer who discovers in your asking of God to reveal to you the things that he sees, when he reveals you are wrong, it is incumbent upon us as believers to admit we were wrong. And then this is a word, and I saw this in like two or three different places because I studied, and I thought about it and looked through it and finally just came to the, I think it's the right word. And it seems weird, it almost seems um, like an oxymoron to say this, but peacemakers are fighters. They fight for peace. Now you think, wait a minute, those two sound different. Part of, I thought peace was not fighting. That's not what peace is. It's a wholeness that only comes from God. Listen to a couple of verses from Ephesians chapter 4. Make every effort, work hard, fight, is another way to interpret that, to keep the unity of the Spirit through what? Through the bond of peace. Or Romans fourteen nineteen. Make every effort to do what leads, or fight to do what leads to peace, and mutually building one another up. Peacemakers see the reality, are honest about it, Take the risk that it takes to do that, sometimes admitting in ourselves that we were in the wrong, sometimes confronting people that are in the wrong. It's not always us. Now, we got to make sure we get that log out of our eye before we go after the speck in our brothers. Amen? But that doesn't mean we don't go after the speck sometimes if we see they're out of line with what the gospel says, especially if they're a believer. If they're an unbeliever, we can't expect them to act like they're a believer, but we can point them to the way of Christ. And we say to them, I'm going to fight to make every effort. The word there means to do everything we can. Y'all know what the word every means, right? Every. Fight for peace. St. Francis of Assisi once said, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. 
Where there is hate, may I bring love. Where offense, may I bring pardon. May I bring union instead of discord. Now, let's just be open and honest for a moment. It would be pastoral malpractice to talk about peacemaking and not reference the current situation and climate in our country. It would be. And so this week, one of the things that I did is I read a, an article, part of a book, by a pastor named Derwin Gray, who is a, an African-American pastor in the Carolinas. And he talks specifically about a theological understanding of peacemaking when it comes to racial division and unity. And I just wrote down four things that he says in that article. And the first thing is that we as believers must understand that God is restoring his family and it includes every tribe, every nation, every tongue. That the work of the Lord is bringing together the family of God. And that when we get into the family of God, although our distinctiveness is still there, we are part of the same family from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Secondly, he says, if the gospel is indeed good news, it will break down the barriers socioeconomically, racially, ethnically, and culturally. He says it won't necessarily wipe away differences, but it will break down the barriers that prevent us from being a part of one another's lives and living lives together. For the sake of the gospel, for the glory of God. He says, thirdly, the the gospel, if it is truly good news, and this is going to replace he says it is, will create true peace and reconciliation Between ethnic groups. He says, not a ceasefire, not a truce. Not a let's just get everything to be where everybody feels better about themselves. That it will be true peace. God-given reconciliation. And out of those three things, Derwin Gray says... That if we are honest about who we are as believers when it comes to following Jesus Christ, we must be about the ministry of racial reconciliation. He says it's not a segment of the gospel. It is at the heart of the gospel. It's not a secondary issue. It's not a third place issue. It is a primary issue in establishing and seeing the spread of the kingdom of God. And our ultimate goal is not a truce. It's not just getting the protest to stop or just everyone getting along. The ultimate goal is the transformation of people by the gospel of Jesus Christ into the family of God that is talked about and prophesied about in Scripture. And we are naive to think that it's not still an issue, not just because we've seen stuff in the last two or three weeks. You know, sometimes you think, when you're going into being a pastor, you think, well, you know, when you're a pastor, people will hold back what they really believe if they know that it might not be good to say. 
That, that ain't true. Okay? Just not true. Um, we're privileged to have my father-in-law here today who pastored for still doing ministry over 50 years. Amen. That's worth celebrating. Amen. And it's interesting because he, when I was, when I was in seminary, I remember him telling a story about the fact that um, he was pastoring, I believe it was in Gates. Y'all, anybody, anybody been to Gates, Tennessee? Yeah, my mom has. Uh, Eli has. He doesn't remember it. It's right. It's it's near Frog Jump, um, Halls, right around that area, Tennessee. Y'all y'all know where all that is. He was pastoring Gates, and was threatened because there might be some African Americans to come to church. And he said at that time, and he told the congregation that if any moment that anybody is not welcome in this church is the moment I'm no longer your pastor. Now, here's the thing, and, and, and I'm thankful for a, a father-in-law who, who stood there. I pastored in a town, the big town of Ripley, that was the big town next to Gates, my first pastorate. And I remember specifically, years later, right? I won't tell you how many difference between years between us there is. A lot, all right, between us and pastoring, right? And so... I'm there, and we had a revival. Revival. Kelly Green, evangelist, comes in. And part of our revival strategy was that we went to the high school. They let us have an assembly, and we invited every person in the high school to come to church that night and promised them free pizza and ice cream if they came. We had more people in that church that night than we had any other time in my whole time of pastoring in Ripley. And it was the most ethnically diverse worship service Ripley had ever seen. And as they were coming in, my heart was so excited thinking the number of people that are here to celebrate Jesus and to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was so excited. And I walked to the back and one of my deacons was standing in the back waiting on me. A man that I had admired for what he had said and stood up and all these kind of things. And as I stood there, he walked up to me and he said, if I would have known you were going to invite every, and then he uses a word that I would never use. In this town to our church, I would have decided to stay home. Deacon in our church. And I said to him, then you need to go home right now and you don't need to come back until that attitude is gone. Now, listen, that's not about I'm not saying that for me. What I'm saying is we have an issue when 50, 40, 30 years apart in what was supposed to be a time when that stuff was kind of not as much as it was. When it is blatant as a deacon willing to tell his pastor that. That's not out back with another member saying, I can't believe that's a deacon feeling confident enough to tell his pastor that. And so as a predominantly white church, we have to ask ourselves the question, what does it mean for us to be peacemakers in this moment in which God has called us to live right now? I don't have all the answers for that. If I did, I'd publish it somewhere. 
But I watched a video this week by the creator of VeggieTales, which seems like the craziest place to watch a video on this. But it is, it's great. And at the end of it, he, he lists all of these things of why people are mad and why they have the right to be. And then at the end, he says, so what do you want to do about it? He says, I don't know. But he says, I will tell you the one thing I know we have to do is we have to care. Now we have to say, if we're called to be peacemakers, then we got to be active and finding a way to be a part of that. Here's what it says. It says that blessed are the peacemakers because they will be called sons of God. So what does that mean? Here's what I think it means is my understanding reading lots of stuff. It's because in the moment when we are making peace with other people, between people, according to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are most like God. When we are bringing people together in a way that glorifies him, we are most like him. Then he moves on to an easier thing, right? Not really. He finishes the Beatitudes by saying, blessed are you when... And I know they were all like, great, what is the win here? Blessed are us. This hasn't been like where we've gone. But he says to this oppressed group of people, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. I'm not going to spend a lot of time today on this particular part of this. First of all, realize that blessed are you when you're persecuted because of righteousness is important there. It's not just for being a jerk. Some people are persecuted because they're just not very nice. Amen. Okay, don't point at anybody, please. It says that if you're following the Lord and you're doing what God has called you to do and you find yourself in a place of persecution, then blessed are you. You are blessed, he says in verse 11. Now look at this. When they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me, be glad and rejoice because your reward in heaven is great. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. History shows us that persecution has often been the fertilizer of church growth and revival. It purifies us. It spreads us. Difficulty causes us to refocus our lives on what is really important. I mentioned in the baptistry just the remarkable thing that all three of those young ladies came to know Christ in the midst of this pandemic while we were meeting online. And I remember we had talked about doing online services, streaming like we're doing now. We had talked about that for several years. Diane and I have had that conversation almost every year. This year we put it in the budget and we think about it. Well, what it will require? Well, it does require a lot. And we didn't really do that. Well, here's the thing. When the pandemic hit, it was like, we don't really have an option here. So we figured it out. That's why we got cameras here and we had a camera in the baptistry today. And people have done lots of great work to make that happen. And we didn't know what to expect. We went online that first Sunday, Facebook, we were all online, Facebook, our website, YouTube, we got it all going. And we had more people show up for church that Sunday than I don't, than I ever remember. Now you can't really fully understand. There were some people that if we used, there's some churches out there using formulas that if we use their formula, we had 1500 people on church on that Sunday. We didn't have 1500 people, all right, watching. But I remember the Lord just reminding me again that when you think something is difficulty and throws a wrench in your plans, that's when I can use it for my glory the greatest. Blessed are you. James says to rejoice over your suffering. 
And Jesus wraps up this whole thing. And I believe, this is what I really believe. I believe that the Beatitudes are a list of character traits and qualities that build throughout it all. And that the ultimate two that he wanted us to focus on were those last two that we just talked about. That when you, because of Christ, receive persecution, ridicule, don't react in a way that shows that you are acting just as the world would react, but react in a way that shows that you are a follower of Jesus Christ and that our ultimate goal in life is to be the people that bring the peace of God to the people on this earth who desperately need it. And so as we finish today, I want to ask you six questions. And these are specifically about the peacemaker part, but that's just where the Lord had me to focus this week. And these are six questions. And they come out of that same place. From Darwin Gray. Number one. Would people you know. Most intimately call you a peacemaker. Number two. Would people who read social media posts. Of yours. Say you are a peacemaker. Number three. Would people who know you say that you participate in gossip or slander or deception or lies? Number four, how would people say you are at engaging and handling conflict? Number five, how would people say you interact with people on the opposite end of the political spectrum? My grandfather would have said right there, I went from preaching to meddling. Number six, would people say you are pursuing peace amid the racial division in America today? Blessed are the peacemakers. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, first of all, Lord, I am just, um, Lord, I'm overwhelmed. As I have studied and reread and re-gone over these Beatitudes, Lord, I am overwhelmed with the reality of my own sinfulness and the ways that I fall short in following you. And so, Lord, today, first I come and confess to you that, Lord, I need you, that I am poor in spirit. That's my desire, Lord, is to come to that place of being fully destitute before you, realizing that without you, I have no ability in myself to do anything good. Lord, I pray that you would remind me again and again of my own sinfulness, Lord, not just to keep me down, to remind me of the joy that comes in releasing that to you. And Lord, I want to hunger and thirst for you. I want to be teachable. I want to be moldable by you and by your truth and by your word. Lord, I want to show mercy to the people around me. I want to have a pure and holy passion for you. Lord, I desire to be a peacemaker. Someone who is actively pursuing peace. And Lord, let me be willing to suffer for you. To give glory to you even in the midst of it. But we pray that we would take these amazing traits countercultural, upside down traits Lord and that we would show people around us that we are yours because they have been infused into our life by you 
I'm thankful today for your son, Jesus, who, though he was in the form of godliness, did not consider that something to be held on to, but instead became a form of a servant. Died on the cross for my sins, for the sins of the world. And Lord, I pray that if there are those listening today, either here in person or online, that have never accepted you as their Savior, Lord, I pray that that would happen right now. They would realize and admit their sinfulness in their own lives and that they'll never have true peace without you. Lord, that as we have seen the testimony of these three young ladies that have given their heart and accepted you as their Savior and have been baptized, Lord, I pray that if there are those in this room or those that are not in this room that are watching online, Lord, that you would make it clear to them that they need you. They need to be saved. And that today they would say, I'm ready, Lord. I'm ready. Heavenly Father, we pray for those of us that are believers, that you would search our hearts and help us to see what you see. That we'd be willing to be honest with ourselves about the problems in our own lives, in our own families, in our own country, and that be willing to risk whatever it takes to make peace. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.